Welcome to the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast that's raising the bar on craft cocktails. I am your host, Louise Solace, and with me is my very, very talented friend, who can always be my road dog, the mixtress DC Gina. Hi, Louise. Hi, lovely. How are you doing today? I'm good. Where are you at? I'm in Capitol Hill. I'm in Washington, D.C. at Buffalo and Bergen, and it's a lovely day, and I'm just looking outside the window thinking, I hope everyone gets their vaccine soon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sign up, pre-reg, do whatever you got to do. Get those shots in your arms. Yeah, so you can get back in this bar. <laughs> We're lonely. Exactly. Exactly. My arm's sore. I got my first one. Yeah, I love that. So halfway there. Halfway there. That's right. All right, Jim, I'm going to take you a little back in time. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Do you remember the 1977 film Smokey and the Bandit? I mean, I know it. I don't know it, but yes. Okay, so I was a kid in 1977. I know I don't look it, but I was. And I basically, I remembered the basic storyline, but what I didn't remember, which I think is funny how it ties into the show, it was a movie about two bootleggers attempting to illegally transport, get this, 400 cases of Coors beer from Texarkana to Atlanta. And now... Cletus Snowman, he was the trucker pulling the beer. And the bandit, who was played by late great Burt Reynolds, of course, he drove a Pontiac Trans Am. And his whole job was just to distract the Smokey. And, you know, good old Texas County Sheriff Buford T. Justice. That's the whole show, our movie, in a nutshell. It actually did become a show later, but yeah. Kind of hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. To think that that was real, yeah. Yep. We're talking about getting real. So it may have been a very silly plot, but Smoking the Bandit was the second largest earning movie in 1977. It earned over $300 million with a budget of only $4.3 million. Wow. So that's a whole lot of profit. It was second only to, of course, Star Wars, which earned more than $775 million. So... But still, $300 million on such a silly plot. And here's another cool thing about this movie. It's where Sally Fields and Burt Reynolds fell in love in real life. Aw. Yeah. See? I didn't know any of that. Yeah. I'm into it. Good. Good. And here's why I bring this up. So speaking of those who once dreamt of taking on the open road as a long-haul trucker, let's introduce today's designated drinker, shall we? He is no Cletus Snowman. No, he is not. But he is the Central Midwest Regional Director of the Conservation Fund, Clint Miller. Welcome to the show, Clint. Welcome. Thanks, Louise. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Gina. Appreciate it. That's quite an introduction. Are you going to tell me that you you were like <laughs> like trying to like deter police officers or what, what goes on? <laughs> no, it's an origin story that actually how I got into doing what I do today. So as... Louise mentioned, I do work for the Conservation Fund. We're an organization that applies land conservation and natural resource-based economic development together. And where those two sort of parts of our mission come together, we're super comfortable. So working forests, working lands, working farms, gateway communities into important, beautiful places. So I'll talk more about the fund later, but it does talk about how I got into the business, which is 
uh, I wanted to be an over-the-road truck driver. I was inspired by the movie that, that ran from about 1979 to 1981 called uh, BJ and the Bear, which was even stillier in some ways than uh, Smokey and the Bandit. And it was a trucker that was an independent contractor, drove around the country with his sidekick, a chimpanzee. And they solved mysteries and got into these wacky little crime situations. And I thought that was the coolest thing that I could do. Wait, Clint, was that a chimpanzee or an orangutan? Uh, the orangutan was Clint Eastwood. Oh, gotcha. If you remember, that was Clint Eastwood. That was in, uh, I'm just going to space out the name of the movie, but I think that was Clint Eastwood. So this was the chimpanzee. That's funny. And I grew up on uh, mutual. I think, I think we're dating ourselves. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I grew up on, on Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. So Marlon Perkins was the host, and he had this sidekick named Jim Fowler, who unfortunately passed away just a couple of years ago. But Jim uh, used to jump out of the helicopter and wrestle the anaconda to the ground, which is what Marlon would narrate. And, you know, in Sunday nights in 1970s, you didn't have much for TV. It was ABC, CBS, NBC, and PBS. And there was a period of about two hours every night you got to watch shows. So I was fascinated by you know Jim Fowler well when I got to uh, high school and ready to graduate from high school I wanted to be an overroad truck driver that didn't sit well with my mother or my father so I went up to the university it was University of Wisconsin-Madison and I spent uh, a day uh, touring the various programs and there was a professor named Scott Craven, who was a professor in the wildlife department that gave a presentation about what it was like to be a wildlife biologist. And he described to a T what it was like to be Jim Fowler and how you could get there. And so I entered that. I registered for school that day. I got in. I got enough scholarship money. And back then, tuition was $490 per semester. Wow. Oh, my gosh. I got enough money to be able to go to school for a couple of years. And I graduated with my bachelor's degree. And I spent 14 years as a wildlife biologist doing Jim Fowler things. Awesome. Really adrenaline pumping, fun work. And then I moved myself into the work that I do today, which is land protection, where I'm really doing a lot more real estate activity and legal activity and working with partners than I do jumping out of helicopters and resting the anaconda to the ground. So thank you, Louise, for bringing back the memory of how I got into the business that I do today. You know, always got to find a unique way to open the show. And when you drop that little nugget when we do, you know, so everyone knows we do a little pre-interview, get to know each other. When he dropped that little nugget, I knew that was the one I was going to hook into. So thank you. <laughs> and thank you for dating me. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, you and I together, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, now I want to see what he does. I want to, I want to see somebody wrangle an anaconda. That's what I'm going to do next. Yeah. Now we got to look up. Now we're going to have to go like do the Googles and see if we can find any dirt on them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have terrific pictures of me with with a variety of wildlife. And I, I mean, the, some of the wildlife biologist stories are, are just uh, crazy. And I'll tell you one little nugget that I think might be a little fun is back in the early 90s, uh, a good friend of mine was doing his graduate work studying the Everglades snail kite, which is a small hawk-like bird that lives just on snails, Everglades snails specifically. And they live, live between Lake Okeechobee and the Everglades, and they're endangered. And at least at the time, they were very endangered because many of you may know they're, they're, uh, the Everglades are, are significantly impaired compared to what they used to be, particularly because, uh, because of, of water issues, water management issues. So it's a huge uh, conservation 
uh, concern. Anyway, he was studying these these birds and he had was having troubles capturing them. He needed to capture them to put a radio transmitter on them in order to track where they go. And I had used at one time a shoulder-fired net gun, which is basically is what it sounds like. It's a capture gun. It's a little shoulder-fired thing. And you'd a net would come flying out with projectiles and would wrap up the animal and the animal would be captured. And then you can do what you know, mark the animal if you needed to. Well, he called me up and I arranged to go down to visit with him for about five days in Lake Okeechobee and, and the Northern Everglades. And we trapped snail kites and uh, we actually sh- would chase with an airboat, again, all permitted with the with our, our the partners at Fish and Monsters. We'd chase them with the airboat alongside. We'd shoot the net gun. It would capture the bird. The bird would drop in the water. We'd grab the bird, and then we'd put a radio transmitter. And back in those days, the radio transmitters were uh, nothing like they have today. And now they've got these little tiny radio transmitting units. And it was just a stunning opportunity to spend some time. But what I was going to say is that I am terrified of snakes and creepy crawlies. And the very first bird we knocked out of the air, we couldn't get the airboat turned around fast enough. We were afraid of, of hurting. There was some heron, great blue herons nearby that we were afraid of their, their nests were there and we didn't want to hit those. So he made me jump off the front of the boat into Lake Okeechobee in the muck up to my neck. And I kind of plotted over and got the bird, put it on the airboat. He can't he'd come and pick me up. By the time we stopped in order to put the radio transmitter on the bird, I had taken all my clothes off because I was terrified. I would have some sort of creepy crawly or snake in my clothes. And it took us maybe 20 minutes. And I had come, you know, to process the birds. I was in the blazing sun for about 20 minutes. But for a guy who just came out of Colorado winter, I was so sunburned, I couldn't sit down for three days. (laughs) There's my creepy crawly fun little story. Yeah, that's really funny to think somebody who went out to like spend his life in the wildlife in like the great outdoors is afraid of creepy crawlers. That's very funny to me. <laughs> I, I I spent my uh, my EMT career, so emergency medical technician career, uh, for almost fifteen years, and. I was rarely, in fact, I don't ever recall having to leave the scene of, of any sort of call that we had, horrific accidents, uh, um, you know, really bad medical calls, um, never had an issue. And a lot of times I was the last, I would say the last man standing. But when my oldest son got a nosebleed when he was four, I just about passed out. And I, I held the Kleenex here, put this on your nose, dad's going to go sit down. When I would sit in trainings, you know, all my fellow EMTs would geek out on the gross pictures they would show. And I would just be in the back of the room with my eyes closed, trying to, you know, do my Zen moment just to, to not even look at the pictures. I just cannot, unless the pager had gone off, I can't stand the sight of blood. Go figure. So you and I share that. I pass out at the sight of blood. I've done that quite a few times. It's very funny. It's very, it's not very dramatic. It's very slow. And it starts with a, Oh, 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 oh. And it's very funny. It's a, it's a slow process, but it's like, again, we'll go back to old school when we used to turn off the old TVs that had TV tube in them. It would go from, it had the little white light in the center and slowly go up. That's what I experience every time. And every time it happens, I'm like, stop being stupid. You're fine. You're going to be fine. But I can't handle it's 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 psychological and and physical, apparently, because I guess what's happening is your capillaries and your lungs are closing or shutting. I don't know something. Someone told me. So anyway, uh, you and I share that. Wasn't a good trait to have as an EMT, but it never happened on scene. (laughs) 
Uh, I would get, I got razzed about it for 15 years. I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, but I applaud you for going through it anyway. I love that story though. It's like, I mean, I feel like you have more stories like that. So I'm like excited. Well, if you think about it, I'm starting to see a pattern develop here. First, you're afraid of blood, but you're an EMT. You're afraid of creepy crawlers, but you go out into conservation and, and the wildlife. Hmm. <laughs> Maybe I'm now, nowadays, all I do most of the time is work with lawyers and real estate agents, and I'm afraid of both of them. So <laughs> there you go. And as well, you should be. <laughs> Maybe that's what it is. So you like to face your fears head on and conquer them because that's what that oh, is. Oh, maybe. Maybe that's what it is, Gina. You've got it. I'm, I'm an introvert and uh, this pandemic's been the best thing ever. <laughs> you know, I don't have to go out and meet people. And my business is all about developing partnerships and meeting people and gaining trust. And uh, it's great. I just sit at home and do nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Kidding. <laughs> I'm like, I'm sure that's not true, but it is funny to think that. So, Clint, when we were talking, you were telling me, uh, which I thought was really interesting, about how conservation works, about the working farms or the working forests. Can you give our listeners a little more in-depth explanation to that? Because I that was eye-opening for me. Yeah, I think I can. I mean, they, so the group I work for, the Conservation Fund, is is sort of a standout in our business. I mean, what I tend to tell people is we're the largest land conservation group you've never heard of. You know, we're not big. We're a couple hundred employees across the country. We only really work in the U.S., um, but we do anywhere from a quarter billion to a half a billion dollars worth of real estate activity on an annual basis. Wow. And what we're doing, we've got the really the, the it, when people take a look at our website, you'll see all kinds of different things that we're involved in. We have our natural capital investment fund, which is offering finance and advice to small businesses about creating jobs. We have a resourceful communities program that uh, was developed long ago because they recognize the, the tie in with these beautiful natural areas that we're working on. Poverty oftentimes was right outside those areas because people weren't earning an income that was sustainable in, in those communities. Um, we have a loan program for small nonprofits where we loan them funds in order to, to uh, uh, accomplish their missions, their conservation missions. So we have all these different things that we do, but at the core of what we do is we provide uh, financing, we provide real estate expertise and financing to be able to walk in and help our partners accomplish their conservation objectives. So when it comes to these working programs, so I'll use the working forest program as, as sort of uh, an illustration. We've working for forests, these big commercial timber forests in the U.S., uh, mostly in the north, southeast, and then in the northwest, are disappearing because they are being, you know, bought by real estate investors who use the timber sometimes hard, sometimes aggressively, not always, but they use the timber and take some revenue off the land from the timber. And then they sell what are called the retail lots. They'll sell all the little lots around the lake. They're lots that have access to the rivers. They'll sell the, the lots that are adjacent to the roads. And so you've carved up a big part of that forest or they'll start carving up the whole forest. So what that does is, is it 
it doesn't allow that forest to be managed as a large, you know, contiguous forest like it might have or in a way that would be reflective of the way a forest might have behaved naturally. Big fires, big windstorm events, insect outbreaks. So it interrupts that. So one of the things that we do is uh, we are able to go out and acquire these big forests. These are multi-million dollar land acquisitions. We uh, purchase those those uh, forests, then we sell conservation easements. So basically, a restriction on the property that keeps it from being developed, but also typically provides and most often provides a permanent access, permanent public access. So it's like public land, but it's not owned by the public. And then the underlying fee, the underlying ownership gets sold to somebody else who wants to manage it as a forest, who wants the timber revenue. So the work continues on the forest, supporting the local economy, whether it's recreation or wood products. And then somebody else owns the property and it still stays on the tax rolls. At the end of the day, there's this, there's permanent conservation. So we look at that as kind of how we would describe a working project where we've, you know, hopefully sustained jobs in that community. We've met the conservation objectives. And oftentimes for our partners and the people we work with, it's often done at a fraction of the cost it would be to say buy it and permanently set up a preserve or a nature or a wild wilderness area. That's great. It, to me, it's there's yeah, it's it's it, I've never thought about land behaving when you said that, like the natural behavior I was like, well, of course it does. Those are words that like so smart. Shuh, but I've never I've never thought of it that way. Um, but it, it makes sense in that you you're not shutting down the opportunities for for I mean, capitalism, here we are. I mean, it, it's true. And then you, to your point, this is, helps feed families and and sustain life. Absolutely. But uh, human life, um, as we know it. But then to be able to sustain that forest and not lose all of the other things that we need as humans to conserve, um, that just feels like a win-win. It, yeah. And that's, of course, that's the way we feel. You know, it's it's a unique, again, a pretty unique mission. You know, we are a very unique organization. We don't have a membership, but we still obviously accept donations. We are a nonprofit, but we are focused on being creative. We've got business-like attitudes, business-like minds, pretty risk tolerant, and we're very innovative. Some of the things that we've done at the Conservation Fund, nobody else has tried it before. And we're willing to take those risks because, you know, we see we have to make step up big. And our goals on the, for example, the uh, forest conservation are enormous. We're, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars worth of capital that we need to do this work. Yeah. You know, we don't have it in hand, but we are working on, you know, uh, relationships with funders and people with like minds that are willing to take a risk and do something big. That's awesome. That's awesome. We have so much to cover, but Gina, what if we do a cocktail right now? What do you think? Uh, yeah, we can do that. I'm going to. Walk around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Briefly, as Gina goes around, about the Ozark project you were telling me about, that 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 I think is kind of cool because you kind of see the cause and effect. One, it directly reflects what Gina does and how she, you know, pours these wonderful cocktails and how your efforts actually make for what she puts in a glass even better. Louise, great question. So some of the work that we've been doing in the Ozarks of Missouri um, in particular has been looking at, at large forest conservation projects. And there, when I talk about large forest projects, you know, a thousand acres of ownership in that part of Missouri is big. And so we're trying to target some of those large 
remaining ownership, particularly uh, from landowners who are saying, hey, look, I'm, I'm done owning this. My kids don't want to own it. They don't hunt or, you know, nobody's interested in farming anymore. And a lot of those places do have forestry, uh, a, a big forest component because the Ozarks, these rolling hills of southern Missouri, are filled with these beautiful oak forests. And I was told recently that the oak market, and in fact, I just found that out about here where I live in southeastern Minnesota, the oak market is going through the roof. And the reason, or one of the reasons given for the oak market going through the roof is the demand for oak staves for barrels. And my understanding is that because of the part of the craft cocktail industry and the demand for casks and barrels, there is a resurgence in the interest in oak and other wood, specialty wood products that are coming out of these, these deciduous forests like the Ozarks in Southern Missouri. See, Clint is actually single-handedly making sure we get good barreled spirits, Gina. <laughs> craft cocktail conservation. <laughs> <laughs> I like everything that you guys are saying and I'm thinking to myself right now we're going to make this cocktail and I just want to make sure I have everything alright so we were listening to uh, so Louise always gives me like a little bit of hints and notes and stuff about like what the guest likes and what you do and I want to kind of get inspired by you and I am definitely inspired by you and what we're going to do today is make the salt of the earth and that's what I think that when I hear everything that you're doing it's what I think of with you is like you know, wanting to conserve land and keeping everything, you know, just beautiful and, you know, working so that, you know, the next generations can enjoy it is what I, I, I think of, right? So this cocktail is something a little bit smoky. We're going to, we're going to use mezcal, but if you wanted to in this cocktail, you could use a different spirit. If you wanted to use bourbon, you could. I really like the mezcal on this. I'm going to use some nice smoky mezcal. And I'm going to use uh, two ounces of that. And then we're going to put in one ounce of carrot juice. And I think I want to make a little um, edit to that and say that you should put in one and a half ounces of carrot juice because you're using pre-bottled and so am I. If you were using fresh carrot juice and you juiced it in a juicer, I would say one ounce is more than enough. But if you were using something that you bought in the store on the fresh aisle, like Bolt, um, Bolt House or Lakewood, you're going to just want to use one and a half ounces so you get that... Um, good carrot taste and then we're going to use a quarter ounce of lemon juice and then a quarter ounce of lime juice and the reason why you're using the two different ones is because the lime juice is a bit sweeter than the lemon and the two together really make it make the carrot taste like carrot it's a joke any kind of uh, vegetable always needs a little bit of citrus it tastes more like the vegetable when you're using it in a cocktail and then we're going to use one ounce of Cointreau. And if you don't have Cointreau, you could use triple sec or something like that. And then we're going to use one pinch of sea salt. I'm, I picked a Maldon sea salt because it's got a little nice um, smoky characteristic to it. Can you use different ones? Yes. Be very careful. The only thing I say don't use is any iodized salt. Uh, it is too pungent. And that would be kind of like that granulated table salt. So if you can't find anything else, Use a kosher, just like a kosher salt from the grocery store would work just fine. So the next thing is we're going to serve this up in a chilled glass. You could do that ahead of time if you want to. I'm going to do it right now because I completely forgot and there's no shame in my game. So I will just chill a glass real fast. And if you want to serve this drink on the rocks, you absolutely can. And if you are juicing ahead of time and you're, you have a juicer at home and you live that lifestyle, which I love, 
Um, you could save some of the fronds from the top of the carrot and use that as your garnish as well. All right, so we have that in our shaker tin and now we are going to shake all of our ingredients and we're gonna do it on a little right hand. You gotta keep going. Perfect. So you should have a really nice like froth at the top at this point. And if you don't have a froth on the top of your glass that's a different color than the carrot juice, you need to shake a little bit longer. And we're going to strain our drink. And this drink doesn't require a secondary garnish because you already put uh, the sea salt in it and I wouldn't put anything else on it unless you had a carrot frond. That would be quite lovely. Um, I do not have the carrot frond right now, but it doesn't need a lime or a lemon or anything else. Nice. It's really pretty. Very pretty. What do you think, Clint? I like it. I like it. I think I'd put more mescal. <laughs> Yeah, two and a quarter ounce would work for sure. Yeah, just, yeah, right. Yeah, that's a good point. No, that's delicious. Thank you. The carrot will give you um, the idea that it's healthy. And then, you know, there it is. But one of the things, the reason why I also chose carrot is because carrot needs really beautiful land and like good land in order to grow. And we're going to lose our carrots if we don't take care of our earth in a better way and i always say to people i'm like before you throw something in the ground or you're getting something just remember that like you know your carrots your potatoes your you know tubulars are all coming from there and you're going to eat it so just remember like do you really want to throw that and people are like you're like what what and they're like yeah i wouldn't do it you know i think that's it's a it's one of those things if you think about as again i'm going to date myself when you, the the term you throw it away what is a way <laughs> where, you know, and I think we, if you can be more conscious of that, of what you're just throwing in your bin, your bin is going somewhere else as well. What does that mean? What is a way? But, or, you know, like in the, the fact that we think about give a hoot, don't pollute, you know, I saw an episode of uh, Mad Men, which is funny, you know, because it's set back and they went on a family picnic and at the end they just lifted the blanket and threw all the rubbish on the ground and got in their car and drove away. And you think about it, like uh, people used to empty their cigarette ashtrays out the window of their car. It was just common. I drive 270 every day and I hope anybody that's listening to me knows this. I see what you throw out your windows and I find it appalling that you, that you have the nerve to drive a Tesla and then throw your drink on the floor. It's, you should, you know, you need to get better at that. But I also think what you're doing, Clint, is an incredible effort in order to endure this planet and our country and food and sustainability and, you know, you know, wood, everyone says, Oh, you know, wood staves for alcohol floors for your houses, timber for your, to build a house. I mean, it's a lot. I don't think people realize where these things come from. Gina, I think one of the things that I hope, and I hope is a lesson that we all take out of this pandemic. And Louise, I do celebrate having had my first shot a few days ago. I'm glad that's happened. Cheers. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Cheers to that. I do hope that we, after this pandemic, and particularly the land conservation community, the 
healthcare institutions, and then people who have been confined at home really celebrate and embrace is the opportunity to access the outdoors. That if anything that I do that I'm most proud of and of our organization does that I'm most proud of is creating access opportunities for the outdoors. I do realize that things like working for us are really important for jobs, for the economy, um, for you know the protection of, of lots of different species of forest nesting birds or wolves or, or, or bears. But there's also just the, the trails in people's backyards. It's the open space. There's, there's 1,600 land trusts across the country, similar to the conservation fund, but much smaller. You know, a lot of them are mom and pop shops that just work in little areas. And they are working right in your backyards, wherever you Everybody lives. Our local governments are working on trail projects that provide people access. And we know now that that was more important than ever during this pandemic. When everything else was shut down, we couldn't go to the mall, we couldn't go to the movies, we couldn't do things. People discovered the outdoors. And, you know, uh, I hope that everybody really understands the importance of those open spaces as we go forward, continue to support the work that land trusts and groups like the Conservation Fund do, but also find new ways of, of partnership. And I think, you know, certainly their healthcare institutions understand the importance of good health. And there's no better way to do that than giving people opportunities to be able to walk and to uh, uh, recreate outdoors. I, I hope that there's a resurgence not only in that, but also in the commitment to funding those kinds of things, especially at the local and state levels where it's really seen as really a driver of a lot of local economies. So yeah, great, great sentiments. Yeah. So what were we going to do, Gina? We didn't do our barkeeping. Where are they going to go? You're going to go to designated drinker dot show for the recipes and how to find the conservation efforts and what's going on. Right. And Louise's uh, personal diary from the sixth grade. <laughs> Since we've talked about Louise's growing up in the 70s. What, where are we going, Louise? What? We are going to send everyone to designateddrinker.show. Exactly what Gina said. You're going to find the recipes to this cocktail and all the other cocktails from all the other episodes. And we will definitely have links directly to all of the work that Clint and his organization is doing. And to make it even simpler, if you're on your smartphone listening to us, all you'll have to do is swipe up and all the episode notes will give you links to all of those things as well. There you have it. We've done our housekeeping. Good job, Gina. Yeah. I feel, I'm feeling pretty impressed. Good, good. Is it my turn? It's my turn. Not yet, not yet. I've got one more thing. Okay. So, Clint, will you please tell us, and this is going back to my hometown, which is funny as we're talking about my childhood and my, apparently this episode is all about me, uh, about my hometown in Hannibal, Missouri. Will you please tell us about the new state park there? Well, yeah. So, uh, it's not a new state park, but I will tell you about the project. So, uh, and that's okay. (laughs) We, We tried to make it a state park. But uh, again, the local, when I said earlier about, I talked about the local governments and them stepping up, the city of Hannibal stepped up on this one. So this is a, this is homegrown. Yeah, it's one of my favorite projects I think that I've ever done. It's a certainly a career highlight. It was very uh, complicated, but in a mine, a underground limestone quarry or mine up in the bluffs above the Mississippi River existed a population or exists a population of rare Indiana bats. They're an endangered species. They're very small. They're about uh, uh, just a couple of inches uh, long, a little bitty six inch wing spread. 
they, the largest, the world's largest population of, of rare Indiana bats lives inside this mine, which has 17 miles of passages, 36 giant entrances, because they drove trucks in and out of there for a very long period of time. So you can walk from, from Mark Twain's home in downtown Hannibal right down to the park wow. yeah, on the new uh, paved hike bike trail that we were able to create. Uh, there's six miles of unpaved uh, mountain biking and, and uh, trail running opportunities. And you will also get a chance to see the giant entrances to this park uh, or to, these, to the mine. And there are bat-friendly gates. So basically it allows the bats to come flying out and it keeps people from going in because the biggest threat to this bat population was the people going inside the, the mine itself and disturbing the bats while they were sleeping during the winter time. Once we removed that threat, the bat population there has stabilized, even though the bats in general across the North America are suffering from a, a disease called white nose syndrome, which is a, a disease that they catch and, and can be fatal. It's very fatal to bats. So, But this population has so far been able to survive some of that, partly because we think we provided a great habitat for them. Uh, it was a complicated project. We bought the, the role that the conservation fund played was purchasing the property from the landowner, uh, giving the property to the city of Hannibal as a new park. We also did a tremendous amount of environmental cleanup. Gina brought that, maybe Luis, you brought this up earlier about the give it a hoot, don't pollute. This was a former mine and it had railroad tracks on it. It had a processing facility for limestone. It required a lot of environmental mitigation. Uh, we took all, care of all that. I did most of that uh, contract work and served as a general contractor for the project for the most part. And then uh, when we got it all done after two and a half years, we handed it over to the city of Hannibal. It's one of their most uh, popular parks and most visited parks that they have. And they have a lot of bat related programming around it. So yeah, great place. You get a chance to come visit uh, Hannibal, Missouri and go see the Sedalis Nature Preserve. That's so cool. Yeah, I already, uh, my, my brother doesn't live very far from there. And I said, you have to go to the Bat Festival and tell me all about it. They have a Bat <laughs> Festival annually. Yeah. I love that. All right, Gina, now I do think it's you. Okay, well, now I feel like I have to change it. All right. <laughs> so I always have one question. So I'm always intrigued by people that, you know, identify themselves with one spirit animal. And they're like, you know, I really identify myself with a snow owl because you can, you can hide in plain sight, you know, in the winter. And, you know, it's very regal and I can swoop in and, you know, whatever. If you could identify yourself with one spirit ingredient and it could be for food or drinks, what would it be and why? You know, that's a, that's a great question. It's something I've never had to give thought to. And off the top of my head, if I were to pull something off, you know, I, I'm telling you, it just popped into my head. It was a morel mushroom. So if you're familiar with morel mushrooms, they're reasonably rare, difficult to cultivate. Um, and they don't, they're, they're a little mysterious where you find them. And people protect their morale sites, their, their, their picking areas. So if I were to pick one of those that would make me, you know, sort of describe sort of the way I kind of approach things, I, it's the morale mushroom. That's awesome. <laughs> I love that. Doesn't a morel only only grow under like a decaying oak tree? Is it oak? What, what kind of tree is it? It's a specific tree. I think they can grow on several different species of, of uh, decaying trees, but it is the decaying tree. Usually it's an elm tree is what I, I remember. And around here, we tend to look for elm trees. Elm, elm. Okay. It's our first fungi. <laughs> We've done a lot of foraging during this pandemic. 
and ran through our thing here. But I love that answer for morels. Oh, that's so good. You put me on the spot. It's the first thing I could think of. <laughs> there you go. A fun guy who likes to be fun guy. Who knew? <laughs> on that bad dad joke, I'm going to close the show. Thank you for coming and hanging out with us, Clint. Until next time, we can all be together. Be safe. The Designated Drinker Show is produced by Missing Link, a podcast media company that is dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is Roger That, a podcast dedicated to guiding you through the haze of dementia, led by skilled caregivers Bobby and Mike Carducci. Now, if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy the theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and everything in between. Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows. Your review helps our shows reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company. That's missinglink.company.